This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend political warriors. What a week it has been. And before we get to coronavirus and the Tuesday Michigan primary election results, we are fortunate to have on the other line with us Jill Gonzalez, who is a analyst with Wallet Hub, and she's going to come up with some fascinating information that actually is very relevant to the results of Michigan's uh, Tuesday, March 10th presidential primary. Jill Gonzalez, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Jill, can you tell our listeners what is Wallet Hub? Wallet Hub is a consumer-facing personal finance website that really is there to help consumers stay in the know and hopefully make the most educated financial decisions they can. Well, Jill, Wallet Hub came up with something a week or so ago, maybe longer ago than that, called the Electorate Representation Index of each of the 50 states, and can you tell us what that is and where does Michigan rank in the pecking order, top to bottom, one through 50? Michigan actually did very well here. It ranked third. So what that essentially means is that Michigan very closely mimics the entire U.S. as a whole, and that comes down to things like sociodemographics, so race, religion, age, economy, education, and where Michigan actually ranked number one in two categories was religion and public opinion, which essentially are, are a lot of things that we're voting on this year. Right. So you could almost make the case for Michigan that what happened in our primary, if there was a national primary, Michigan is almost kind of like a microcosm of what a national primary would be like, right? Yeah, I would say it's very predictable of what the rest of the country is thinking right now, how people are voting right now, especially when it comes to public opinion, where Michigan did rank uh, number one in terms of any other state. So that's not only just party affiliation when we're looking at Republicans and Democrats, but also things like views about size of government, views about abortion, same-sex marriage, environmental regulation, you know, all of these different things. So by public opinion, you mean what people in Michigan think about various entities that you just described and others is very analogous to what most of the rest of the nation would have an opinion on on these same issues. Correct. And Michigan was like, what, 93.3% on a 0 to 100% scale? Is that correct? Yeah, its index was very close to that of the rest of the country. I mean, the highest was in Illinois, which was around 95%. So Michigan really less than two points off. What was number two? Number two was Florida. Wow, that's interesting. Three big states, very diverse states, and that's the reason they're so high, I guess. Just for an example, what would be at the bottom, like 49, 50? Uh, some states near or at the bottom, Utah was 48th, Mississippi was 49th, and Vermont was 50th. Wow. 
So how many categories were there all together? I mean, you said race, religion, public opinion, so forth. How many categories were there? There were five categories, and within them, many different metrics. Okay, let's look at something else uh, that you've come up with, and that is personal finances of the various candidates, I think, maybe running for the Democratic nomination and or Republican nomination. Do you have some stuff on that, too? Yeah, absolutely. So we look at everything here right now. Uh, Donald Trump leads the way, still technically a candidate, with around $1.7 billion in assets. His Republican opponent, William F. Weld, uh, has the second most assets, around $47 million. Uh, so those are the two top contenders. Uh, in last place in terms of assets comes Tulsi Gabbard, who only has around $31,000 in assets. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard, one of the uh, Democratic candidates who actually still technically, I think, is running. She's about the only person who hasn't done well in uh, any of the states where there have been primaries or caucuses so far and yet has not dropped out of the race. I mean, Amy Klobuchar has dropped out. Pete Buttigieg, Elizabeth Warren, Michael Bloomberg, they've all dropped out. They all did much better than Tulsi Gabbard, but she's still in. I don't know what she's running on fumes with thirty one thousand in her assets. She's certainly not got personal money, right? Right. So that's not personal money. That is just assets. Again, then we go into cash as well. And everyone we'll talk about is still a candidate. So none of the people that have dropped out here. Uh, but this, just in terms of cash, in terms of what people have in the bank, the average candidate's cash savings is around sixteen million dollars compare that to an average American which is under a thousand dollars in the bank of uh, huge differences here across the board Wow so what a lot of the public suspects about these candidates is that they're personally wealthy and of course many people argue that means they're disconnected to rank and file Americans and some of your figures certainly in terms of finances indicate that that's probably right correct yeah absolutely I mean just vast differences here, uh, especially when we're looking at things like assets, like cash savings. We also looked into speaker's fee to see who gets the most money from that. Uh, that's where Biden clocks out. He's garnered around $5.2 million from speeches, uh, most of them from events held by like colleges and universities. Is that over time? That's not just in the past year, is it? I mean, is this over time he's collected that much? This is over time, yeah. This is his overall income from speeches. And, in fact, one of the biggest uh, givers here was Lake Michigan College that paid him over $180,000. Yeah, I think uh, that is down in southwest Michigan in the St. Joe uh, Benton Harbor area, and they had him in there as a speaker a couple of years ago, uh, paid him a big fee. It's amazing the fees that some of these major politicians command. I know Hillary Clinton was pretty good at that, too, when she ran. Uh, let me ask you, what about Joe Biden right across the board, uh, various categories? Uh, what does he have beyond the speaking fees? Uh, so not much is known about exactly what Biden and Bernie has in terms of a lot of these different things. They're kind of both in the middle. 
when it comes to assets, when it comes to savings in the bank, Biden, I would say, more closer to an average American than most other candidates in the race right now. But not everything is foretold. Well, what does Joe Biden have in terms of personal finances in the bank and so forth? So that, again, not something that was disclosed. Um, We do know more about his speaking fees, which is that just the $5 million income that we know from that, because that's kind of on the books. Well, are you getting this information from public uh, finance reports, campaign finance reports? Yeah, most of it from campaign finance reports, any public information. Uh, We also look at... uh, tax extent or tax returns, that type of thing, which not all candidates are making public. Can you make any estimate based on the information about Joe Biden that's available beyond speaking fees of what he might have in terms of assets or otherwise? Uh, I mean, apart from the income that we uh, disclosed, just as the speaking fees, it's, it's pretty tough. Okay, what about Bernie? Uh, same thing. So we also, the other things that we know here is that uh, he did get around a 390000 royalty that was generated by his, the book that he published in 2018, Where We Go From Here. So that obviously adds to income as well. Uh, some of his speaker fees are over 100000 too. Very good. Listen, we could talk about this a lot more, but Jill Gonzalez, you've done a great job uh, with these two reports. By Wallet Hub, you're an analyst with Wallet Hub. You're in Washington D.C. or thereabouts. And thank you for being with us this morning. Anytime. Thanks for having me. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. Whoa, what a week it has been. Two huge developments, obviously. The Tuesday presidential primary here in Michigan and burgeoning coronavirus crisis. And we've got just the person to tell us about it. Abigail Sensky is a political reporter with WKAR Radio. Abigail Sensky, thanks for joining us. Of course. Happy to be here. Well, let me ask you, first of all, on Tuesday, uh, your head must have been spinning all day long and leading up to it with everything that was going on, the candidates and the momentous clash between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden here in Michigan. Uh, What's your take on everything? amazing to see former vice president pull off such a decisive victory against Senator Sanders, who up until the end was saying, you know, polling has been wrong here before this, you know, Detroit news poll that came out the weekend before the primary saying Biden had a 24 point lead. He was kind of forecasting that, look, I'm the person holding these 7,000, 10,000 people rallies across the state. And it was amazing for me to see because uh, voters that I had been talking to across the state had been giving me Biden as their second or third preference for weeks leading up to the primary. And then there was this massive sea change after Biden won South Carolina and had a swath of Super Tuesday victories. And we really saw that work out for him on Tuesday in Michigan when he swept 
all 83 counties here. Yeah, and he didn't really even come into the state, did he, until like Sunday or Monday before the election, whereas Bernie had a staff here for weeks, months beforehand. He'd spent a lot of money here. Uh, He won here four years ago. He really never, you know, dissolved his campaign in Michigan for four years. And all Joe Biden had to do was show up in the last 48 hours. Everybody's second or third choice, and yet he wins. Yeah, like you're saying, it's amazing. Bernie Sanders had this kind of infrastructure embedded in the permafrost of Michigan from 2016. And he went to five cities ahead of the primary and spent the whole weekend here canceling events in Missouri and Mississippi to spend extra time in Michigan. And Joe Biden, like you said, only came in on Monday going to uh, Grand Rapids, Flint, and Detroit. So it was amazing to see him pull off that win. And he really did well with suburban voters and black voters, and especially women. That was what was most interesting to me. Joe Biden won 53% of women in Michigan compared to Sanders, 39%. Yeah, Abigail Sensky, one thing that was different about this year's primary compared to four years ago is that there was no real Republican contest this year. I mean, Donald Trump was virtually unopposed. William Weld, the former Massachusetts governor, was on the ballot. Uh, He only got about, I think, 1%. And uh, four years ago, Donald Trump still had to fend off Ted Cruz and John Kasich uh, as candidates uh, in the Michigan primary. So there was motivation for Republicans to vote four years ago. They had nowhere really to go if they weren't that interested in voting in the Republican primary other than the Democratic primary. We've got open registration here, meaning that you go into the polling place on Election Day and you can Pick either party's primary you want to. Did you see any evidence that there may have been a lot of crossover voting uh, by Republicans and or independents who might not have otherwise voted in the Democratic primary because there was no action in the Republican primary? I didn't see any evidence of that firsthand myself. I certainly heard it rumored ahead of the primary, but the voters that I talked to on Election Day, nobody had heard of anything or was planning to do any kind of crossover voting. The most kind of rumor with most currency was from uh, Republican State Representative Bo Lefebvre, who said that he was you know, potentially going to be crossover voting in the primary. Um, just to kind of meddle with things for the Democrats. But uh, I I didn't see any evidence. Yeah, you know, uh, Tuesday, the presidential primary was just a matter of days ago. And yet it seems like it was last year (laughs) because it has been overtaken by the news of coronavirus in Michigan. And that has just overwhelmed the news media and public conversation for the last two or three days. What is state government doing in reaction to that, particularly, let's say, Governor Gretchen Whitmer? So the state house lawmakers in Lansing are trying to send uh, past $25 million, um, in kind of response to mitigating the spread of coronavirus in Michigan, which, you know, Governor Whitmer is expected to sign that. And Governor Whitmer also late Thursday night ordered all K through 12 schools, public, private boarding in Michigan to close for three weeks 
um, to stop the what's called community spread of the coronavirus. And that follows, you know, all of our public universities as well, moving to online classes and sending students home in some cases. The state government has not actually ended their session yet, um, which is curious considering, you know, the age of a lot of these legislatures is kind of in the high-risk category for um, coronavirus. But they closed the Capitol to tours and public events, but members of the public can still go in and observe the session taking place right now. How about the rest of state government? Is there any sign that that, too, might close down except for essential services like maybe state police or whatever? So both the House and the Senate have made modifications saying non-vulnerable employees are expected to come in on session days. Um, Otherwise, people who are vulnerable, who are over 60 or who have chronic health issues from home, and Governor Whitmer did last night in her 11 p.m. press conference foreshadow that she would have a statement forthcoming about the state workforce. So it kind of remains to be seen what's going to happen with that. But, you know, I think it would be a safe bet to say that there might be telework and work from home policies coming. Do you think that Governor Whitmer and the legislature and or state government have any better idea than the rest of the population, including me, I don't know about you, about how deep and serious the coronavirus disease spread is and how long this might last? I mean, right now, three weeks They're going to close K-12 public schools, but is there any sign that people think maybe at the end of three weeks that'll be it, everybody will go back to school, or we got to be ready to extend this? I think right now people are really kind of settling down into the trenches. I think that there's a broad feeling that this could be extended, um, and the governor kind of foreshadowed that last night in her remarks saying, you know, depending on where things are, People are, you know, we might have to extend this. And even schools who had spring breaks planned for after when the governor has canceled schools says, you know, they will have to reevaluate and see where things are at with the spread of coronavirus. Do you think coronavirus is going to have an impact all the way from now until November? And do you have any sense of whether this is going to impact or affect uh, the election in November, maybe voter turnout, whatever? I'm, it's, you know, it's already affecting primaries. And, you know, it, even in Michigan, we had hand sanitizer and precautions in states that haven't gone for their primary process yet. Polling places are moving, which can be incredibly disruptive to voters. Um, away from nursing homes and schools, especially if schools are closed. Um, that's happening in places like Florida and New York and Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, I think that even if, you know, people aren't still in self-quarantining mode come November, the memory of coronavirus will be long and this will stay in the political ether for a long time that's a good insight we are very thankful to you abigail sensky political reporter for wkar radio in east lansing thank you abigail of course we'll be back in a minute you're listening to the political insider with bill ballinger on mtn 
Here's Bill. We have returned, and we are fortunate to have with us our longtime friend, Mark Grebner. Mark, glad to have you with us. Thank you for having me back. Now, Mark, let me just tell our listeners, remind them, they probably already know this, but he's a senior consultant with his longtime firm, Practical Political Consulting, and he is also an elected member of the Ingham County Board of Commissioners, a Democrat from East Lansing. In fact, he's one of the longest-serving county commissioners in the entire state, and he is a man of parts when it comes to Michigan politics. He, for years, was Michigan's leading list broker, political list broker, and maybe he still is. So, Mark, I want to ask you, you've seen a lot of presidential primary elections in Michigan. How do you describe what you saw in Michigan on Tuesday? I think you made some predictions about what was likely to happen, and how accurate were your predictions? Well, long before each election occurs, I kind of have a hunch about it, and I write it down, and I tell media interviews uh, what my hunches are. And, and then usually I find that as the event gets closer, I find myself revising those hunches. And then at the end, I always find that the original guess, long before anybody had any idea what was going to happen, my original guess turns out to be the most accurate. <laughs> so in this case, I guessed about four months ago we'd see 2.2 million votes. And I don't know where exactly that came from, but it just felt like a 2.2 million vote electorate. And, and that it would be a little over two-thirds Democratic partly because the Republicans had no reason to vote, and partly because some of the Republicans would show up as Democratic ballots. In other words, there'd be a little crossover. So uh, we ended up very close to 2.2 million, and we ended up just a hair over two-thirds of the vote being Democratic. And I even got the absentee split about right. As I think I said earlier, uh, I'm kind of tempted to get out of the prognostication business and, and close on a win because I've made so many bad guesses over the years that I've tried to forget them, and I could just remember this one. <laughs> well, let me ask you, uh, was the Republican vote this year down from four years ago? Because four years ago you had a contest between Donald Trump and Ted Cruz and John Kasich. This year you really didn't have any contest, as you pointed out, on the Republican side. Right. I think that the Republicans, as a formal matter, might not even use the results of the election for the allocation of delegates. And certainly no one campaigned here. Now, the election four years ago was no barn burner either, because by that time, uh, the Republican contest had pretty much settled itself out. But yes, this this year was down even from that. Uh, And and in fact, there, there are two components, just to get a little technical on you. The absentee component doesn't go down or up very much, because you apply for an absentee ballot long before the election and, and you have to say on the ballot which party you want to participate in. So there's nothing, there's no ballot in front of you, and so you don't realize what a waste of time voting Republican will be. So if you're a Republican voting absentee, you generally just say you want an absentee ballot and send you a Republican ballot. Then on Election Day, it's completely clear it's a waste of your time. And so very few Republicans showed up at the polls to vote. So th- most of the Republican vote was absentee, and very few absentee voters crossed over because in order to cross over, you had to decide a couple months ago that you wanted a Democratic ballot. So, right. so it, it's just it's it's a little strange when you look at the total turnout 
the turnout was mainly the, the reduction in Republican turnout was mainly election day turnout was very weak. But that was because by the time the election came up, there was clearly no point in voting Republican. Yeah, looking at 2016, what was the total vote in that election? Was it like higher than 2.2 million? Oh, my goodness. I should have been ready for this quiz. Yes, it was somewhat higher because you had interesting primaries, at least somewhat interesting primaries on both sides. On both sides, yeah. I, I think it was somewhere in the 2.5 range, but, Lordy, if I'd known no, I, I was no, I think quiz, you're right. I'd have no, studied. No, I think you're right. Let me ask you, uh, what percentage of the vote, if you know this at this point, this year was the absentee vote? I mean, how much higher was it because of maybe the passage of Proposal 3, uh, back in November 2018 than 2016. How much higher? Well, the absentee vote in 2016 was around 500,000. And this year, the total number of ballots returned, last I saw, was right around 900,000 ballots had come back. Now, that's not a final number because some of the clerks don't keep the data up to date. Um, but it will turn out to be pretty close to 900,000. And that's an increase of very roughly 80% over the uh, 2016 numbers. Yeah, and raw numbers, uh, it's that much in percent. It's probably like maybe 40% roughly was absentee this year as opposed to maybe 25% four years ago. That, that's about right. Uh, about uh, Yes, that's, that, that, those numbers are about right. Yeah. What else? Uh, I go, was going to say that, that it's mainly in specific areas a specific geographic areas that the turnout went up because individual clerks either do or don't promote absentee voting. And the ones who promote it generated a large number of additional absentee votes. But, for example, Detroit, uh, nothing much was done. And so the absentee vote was not up substantially in Detroit. Right. Let me turn to something completely different, and that's coronavirus, which has overtaken us in news coverage in the last couple of days that makes us think of last Tuesday, even though it was a few days ago, like it was last year, we are being so inundated with coronavirus news. Do you have any thoughts about that and its impact possibly on politics in the United States and the, and Michigan? Well, I think that the, the thing to do, at least what I'm interested in, is focusing on long-term effects, not short-term so in the short term, we have all these measures which we hope are temporary, which are bound to be temporary because either the, the epidemic will be stamped out or it will become uh, so general there's no point in worrying about it. I mean, everybody will get sick. Uh, but, but let's talk about the impact on the economy and on the way we live that will be long term. One of the most important things, I think, is that, that all over the country, especially in higher education but in many other fields, Right now, we're, we're installing distance learning, video conferencing, virtual reality, you know, different modes of presenting information and, and having contact with people. And because we're doing that, right now, universities, I mean, MSU is the, is the closest example, is busily installing software and hardware and implementing new procedures. They're not going to turn back completely. And that means that just, for example, East Lansing, the campus is never going to be as much dependent on 500 kids sitting in a lecture hall as it was last year and 10 and 20 years ago and 100 years ago. And, and the result of that will be that all, we suddenly don't need to have 50,000 kids 
move into East Lansing in the fall. Suddenly, all this real estate, billions of dollars of, of high-rise uh, student apartments and so on, suddenly everybody's going to wonder what in the world that money was spent on and how we're going to fill that. The, the university's campus is designed for 50,000 kids sitting in, in classrooms. And when, when, you know, this has been in the air for many years, but, but the coronavirus actually precipitated the serious change and move toward online learning. It, I don't think the university, our university, any other university is going to turn back. And I think that similar effects are going to occur in uh, business conferences, in uh, sporting events, and in uh, uh, K through 12 education, and really everywhere through the society, and trillions of dollars worth of, of of facilities, capital costs are going to be made obsolete. I think that's a very important observation. In other words, you're saying coronavirus uh, just, uh, you know, by accident has impelled us sharply forward much faster than ever would have been the case if, had it never occurred. That, that's right. And, and the fact that some that university departments have to actually write a check, issue an invoice, issue directions to their faculty, and tell the students not to come here, those are like events that, that were precipitated by coronavirus. But having been done, they're never going to be undone, wow. at least not fully. Listen, we could keep talking about this. We're very fortunate to have Mark Rebner, political guru with Practical Political Consulting, as our guest. Thank you, Mark. We will be back in a minute. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We are back, and we are fortunate to have with us Beth Duchon, who is Executive Director of the Great Lakes Education Project. Thank you for joining us, Beth Deshaun. Thanks for having me, Bill. Okay, I want to uh, ask you, uh, first of all, uh, GLEP, GLEP, uh, Great Lakes Education Project, what exactly is your organization? Sure. We are a bipartisan school choice advocacy organization who works to provide educational opportunities for every student in the state of Michigan. Okay, I want to just harken back to my days as a student back in the Paleolithic era. Uh, when I was growing up and going to public K through 12 schools here in Michigan, I mean, we got A through E's. We didn't even have F. A through E. If you got an E, you failed. Uh, you'd get A plus, you'd get B plus, B minus, C plus, D plus. Uh, back in the good old days, that was what report cards looked like for students, you know, kindergarten through 12th grade in Michigan. And I think maybe we got away from that a little bit in Michigan over the years. Uh, Can you describe to me what has been the evolution of the grading system in Michigan schools over time? And just tell us the history here. Sure. So, honestly, so I have a sixth grader and a fourth grader, and I can assure you today in 2020, they still receive letter grades on their report cards every quarter when it comes home. Um, I think for our younger kiddos, our kindergarten, first, second graders, you're looking at things more, do they meet the, do they meet the 
benchmark? Do they need some improvement? You know, are they an outstanding student um, meeting qualifications? Those types of indicators. But as far as I've seen, once you switch to fourth grade and beyond, it is letter grades, A, B, C, D, F, right? And we all know what that means uh, on our kids' report cards. So what's happening in the state of Michigan now is in 2018, a law was passed to provide public school buildings with a report card similar to that, based on a number of student achievement uh, and student metrics, student learning metrics. And uh, there's been a delay in implementing those report cards at the building level. So why has there been a delay? I mean, I understand the Great Lakes Education Project is disturbed that the Michigan Department of Education, which is supposed to be implementing this law passed in 2018, has not done so. Why not? That's a fantastic question that we also continue to ask the department. So the law passed in December of 2018 requiring the Michigan Department of Education to post report cards for every building by September 1st of 2019. We are now uh, middle of March of 2020, almost 200 full days behind the statutory deadline for the report cards, and the department still has not published them. Well, let me ask you before we get to why maybe they haven't published them, um, why are we asking for grades on buildings, as you say? When you say buildings, I mean, a building could contain a high school, it could contain a middle school, it could contain an elementary school. Uh, why do we grade buildings or why should we grade buildings? Great question. So we grade so many things in our state. We grade our roads. Uh, some states grade their restaurants. Um, we currently have a system of uh, accountability in the state where schools get a color or a number, and that's supposed to indicate how well they're doing or where there may be, be deficiencies that they need help. That is not intuitive or transparent to parents, educators, or taxpayers. Again, everybody understands letter grades because we've been getting them since forever in our schools. So it is only natural that our school buildings, um, we would transfer to a system of letter grades for our school buildings um, instead of something that is, is completely not transparent for people to understand and to be able to reward and celebrate the successes and the A's and the great things that are happening and to be able to find out where there may be some deficiencies and provide supports that are necessary to bring those grades up. So when you say buildings are being evaluated by colors and by numbers, you mean like it's all over the map? I mean, there might be one area, uh, one school district that says, okay, we're going to evaluate our buildings by, you know, numbers like one through five or another district says we're going to do it by yellow, green and red. Uh, and, and basically this law says, no, 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 no. Let's have one consistent, transparent standard for all the buildings that everybody can understand, A through F. Where are you, school building, regardless of where you're located? Where do you rank? Yes, and it's not necessarily that each local district is choosing between a number or a color, but it's the State Department of Education that has created these very convoluted systems that, that are, are not easy to understand. And so they throw a lime green on a school for proficiency, but then that school has yellow in growth 
for instance, no one really can understand what that means in real terms for how that school is performing and how those students are moving towards their, their academic goals. So if, if a, as this system would say, you know, school A gets, uh, gets a B in proficiency and they will get a growth letter grade and a letter grade for their graduation rate and a letter grade to compare them to like schools so that we get an honest report card understanding of where the buildings are at. So it's not just one overall grade per school building. It, there will be categories of grades within a school building. It's just that they'll be consistent A through F statewide. Co- correct. Each building will receive five letter grades, one for proficiency of students, one for the growth of students, one for their graduation rate, one for the progress of their English language learner students, those students that have English as a second language, and their fifth grade will be a comparison of like schools. So while those first four focus on a statewide uh, ranking or comparison, that fifth grade will take like schools based on demographics and socioeconomics and compare them in smaller groups to see how you're competing against uh, like peers. That sounds pretty reasonable and understandable. Why would there be resistance to doing that? Uh, I, I, that honestly, <laughs> I have no idea. It is so common sense to us. We don't understand why there would be any resistance or delays. I just, all I can say is speculate that maybe sometimes um, adults in the system want to, to keep adults uh, focused on, on things that are not centered on, on kids. So, well, in the, in the legislature, when this was debated, I mean, you say it passed in 2018 to create this A through F uh, evaluation system for school buildings. What was the resistance to passing that law? Because there were legislators who voted against it. Why did they vote against it? I think we heard a variety of reasons while the law was being passed. You had some people who didn't want it because special interest groups um, were were not supportive of it. You had others who had concerns about the idea that one particular test may dictate um, the the grade for a school building. Um, none of which are are ultimately true. So you know, as ob- obviously enough, we're willing to uh, to understand it and support it, and then which is why it became law. So right now, is there any sign at all that the Michigan Department of Education is going to do anything on implementing this uh, after they've delayed this long? So they they have, and that's the good news in all of this, is there has been indications um, through their website that they are preparing to launch the report cards. We have heard anecdotally in the field that some schools are gaining access to preview what their report card would look like. Um, and the department has said all along, uh, despite the law being September 1st of last year, that they would comply with putting report cards out in March of 2020. So uh, my hope is within a couple of weeks, schools will see their report cards. How is uh, evaluation working in the various schools in Michigan for students right now? I mean, how you say your your uh, kids that you have in school, your own children, they are graded, you know, A through F. Uh, is that the case here in Michigan at all schools? I mean, private, public, uh, parochial, whatever. I would, I would suspect so. Um, you know, 
friends that I have in other communities, their children bring report cards home every quarter, just like mine do. Um, and some attend private schools, some some are home, well, homeschooled, don't necessarily get a grade. But yes, I think it's very commonplace that our students every quarter bring a report card home with information parents can understand. And you're saying the same should be true for school buildings. Thank you very much. Beth Duchone, Executive Director of the Great Lakes Education Project, who's done a great job of describing the history of this issue and what's going on now. Thank you for being our guest. Thank you for having me. We'll be back next week with more.